Thank you, Sean Tall. Thank you, everyone, for leading us in worship today. Uh, really glad to be with you and and to be able to worship together. Uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, I was able to uh, take a little bit of a break, and we were blessed to have a, a good friend, uh, Joe Moon, come and, and minister to us. And in doing so, he looked at a couple of passages that are pretty traditional at this time of the year. And this time of the year is is uh, called Epiphany for Christians. And what that means is uh, it means to appear, to manifest. And so when we go through certain epiphany passages, we're looking at the ways uh, that uh, we see God has been revealed in Jesus Christ and the quality and character that's been revealed in Jesus Christ. We, uh, we come to a, a new revelation, new understanding of him. Uh, and so this week, we're going to continue down that path. Uh, we're going to learn more about the incarnation of Jesus uh, this week and next. And as Chantal said, uh, on the 23rd, we're going to have do vision week. And so we'll, we'll uh, learn uh, something more about our vision through a particular passage. And then from February until May, uh, we're going to do a ser- series in which and we recognize a lot of our own desires, our desires to uh, gain more and learn more about God, to, to, to receive more from the church, uh, and to uh, come to a greater understanding and receive more, you might say, of our, of our own selves. And so we're going to enter into a series called uh, A More Excellent Way, which comes from 1 Corinthians 12. And so that's all ahead of us. I'm looking forward to doing that with you guys. Um, I think it's going to be a good uh, winter and spring uh, despite circumstances, it's going to be an important year for us as a church, and so I'm really thrilled to to be underway. So let's go ahead and, and look at the passage today. Today we're going to be looking at Luke 2, verses 41 through 52, and I'll go ahead and read it, and then we can explain it. Uh, this is what the word of the Lord says. Now his parents went to Jerusalem, uh, his, uh, his being Jesus. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let me start with a a basic premise. And the basic premise is simply this, that every human being is a leader. According to the Bible, every human being has been given uh, agency, has been given authority. Every human being has the ability to make an impact in the world for good or for ill. 
Every human being is a leader. Uh, somebody's always watching. Somebody's always observing you. Somebody's always learning something from you and I. And therefore, we're always making an impact uh, on in the world, right? And yet, uh, despite the fact that there is an abundance of leadership potential in the world, if we're students of human history, then we know that leadership, uh, the ability to steward our authority, our steward our agency, is actually one of the world's greatest needs, right? Few things can inspire, uh, like leadership uh, can inspire trust and innovation, a sense of uh, safety, security. Uh, few things can inspire those things like, like sound leadership can, and yet fewer things can actually bring, bring about greater distrust or cynicism or, or heartbreak than failed leadership. You know, and sometimes, you know, in our own experience with leadership, we find that maybe we have the character to do what's called to be done, but we don't have the skills. Or maybe we have the skills, but we're not quite mature enough to respond to the task. And of course, there's just simply a, a, maybe a definition of leadership itself that we misunderstand what leadership is all about. And we often think that maybe to be in a position of authority means that I have to be authoritarian, right? And so what do we do? We kind of fake it until we make it. And the tragedy, of course, is when it comes to, to wielding authority, exercising our authority, oftentimes we never quite make it. And we hurt people. And so what do we do? Uh, where do we turn? Uh, loop two, 41 through 52, is a pretty good place to start. It's a place where Christians have looked to for thousands of years. And at the risk of sounding like we're in a leadership seminar, I, I want to say something to the effect of, you know, everything we need to learn about leadership or authority can be found by looking at this, the, uh, looking at this passage and learning from a 12-year-old boy. And we can do that because this 12-year-old boy is Jesus. So let me just recap a little bit what takes place in this story. Mary and Joseph, they have, like every Jewish family at the time, have gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, and then on their way uh, out of town, about a day's journey ahead, they realize that Jesus is actually not with them. And so we recognize that Mary and Joseph, they're good parents. And what I mean by good parents is that they love Jesus tremendously, and yet... They're also capable of losing a child, um, and that's what takes place. But they're normal in, in this sense, right? Um, uh, every other set of parents, uh, they would have, sorry, uh, they're normal in the sense that they, they have uh, been traveling uh, together as a community, and, and they, they've gone to Jerusalem to, to experience the Passover, and of course, they rush back, right? They return to discover uh, to look for Jesus, and they go searching for him, and it takes them three days to do that. See, they pursue him greatly, right? Just like any normal parent. But then they discover something. They discover Jesus is actually in the temple, and he's teaching in the temple. And he's teaching in a way that the leaders in the temple are standing in awe of his understanding, and they're standing in awe of his insight, because He's exercising a divine agency. He's exercising the authority that's been with him from the very beginning. So let's just look at authority here through Jesus, and let's discover two things. that Let's see authority revealed and, and authority refined, uh, excuse me, redefined. 
authority revealed, authority redefined. Okay, first, authority revealed. It's revealed in this passage in three particular ways, politically, spiritually, and relationally. Authority is revealed first politically. You know, Luke 2, the, or excuse me, the, yeah, Luke 2 begins with the birth of Jesus. And it says that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And that's very important for us to remember, that Jesus was born into the reign of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar. And Caesar Augustus was an ambitious man, uh, enjoyed his authority, and he started a rumor that Julius Caesar, his father, was divine. And of course, what that made him was the son of God. And so Luke is saying, by, by, by Luke placing Jesus' birth under the reign of Julius, uh, excuse me, of Caesar Augustus, he's saying Christmas is not about just one son, it's about two. It's not just about one king, it's about two, right? And so he wants the reader, the original reader, to compare and contrast these two sons, these two kings, these two uses of authority. And insofar, Luke is saying, is uh, you exercise your authority, we'll know which king, which son you serve. So it's a radical statement, right, that he's saying about who this boy is, um, the kind of authority that he wields, and the kind of followers that, that this king, this Jesus, will attract. So first, politically. Secondly, we see authority revealed spiritually. When Mary and Joseph discovered Jesus in the temple, they discover him exercising an authority, and this is the authority that he's always that was always promised about him through the prophets. Uh, it's the authority that was sort of intimated and uh, a promise through uh, the angel Gabriel, at the, at, you know, in those famous uh, Christmas passages. And this is a, an authority that's being revealed now. Whether or not Jesus is discovering this authority for the first time is hard to say. But what we gather is that it seems to be that he's asserting himself in a way that everyone takes notice. And when they take notice, they're amazed. But who's amazed? The leaders in the temple are amazed. But the leaders who are nearest and dearest to Jesus, his own, his own parents, they're amazed too. Because Jesus is there in the temple and he speaks and he interacts with the leaders there uh, with a not just a deep knowledge of the Bible, but a mastery of it. And if you know anything about the, uh, the Bible, then you know that the story of the Bible is all about God's pursuit of humanity. So when Jesus is interacting with the leaders in the temple, he's saying, I don't just have a technical, he's demonstrating that he doesn't just have a technical authority over the Bible, like I know where certain passages are. I know uh, names and places and dates. What, he's, what it's demonstrating is that he has a mastery, not just of the Bible, but of the human heart and the human condition. That's why people are amazed at this 12-year-old boy. But also remember, who's, who's in the temple on that weekend? All the Jewish people have come to Jerusalem, and so that means all the heavy hitters are coming. All the scholars, all the theologians, all the social commentators. This is like the greatest Bible conference that ever took place because Jesus is actually literally there. <laughs> but it's all of those types 
I mean, consider for yourself, who's the great thinkers of your time that you admire, that you, you want to sit and learn from? Those are the people that are there in Jesus's day. And those are the people that are sitting and listening to him. And they're amazed. They're amazed. Now, what do we learn from that practically? I think we learn uh, practically uh, there uh, when it comes to authority that Jesus, with the authority of God, communicates with wisdom and grace. You know, most of us struggle with the authority that's given to us. And oftentimes that struggle is revealed in public discourse, in settings just like that, maybe settings online, where out of a sense of wanting to establish authority or maintain authority, we do one of two things. We either talk too much or we talk too little. And I struggle with both of these. Why? It's because we want to maintain authority. We want to... Um, we want to establish authority. We want to give it the appearance of authority. But Jesus doesn't do that. Why? Because Jesus owns his authority perfectly. It's as, it's as uh, natural to him as breathing. Jesus is authority as the son of God. Now, of course, Christians are, are meant to follow Jesus's lead. We're meant to be inspired, impacted. We're, we're meant to learn and follow his lead in in every, in every way. He's our great example. And what Christians believe is that by the power of his spirit, we're persuaded to do so. So here's the practical uh, application. In a world where the church's authority is so called into question, and in many ways rightly so, where its reputation is damaged and we've earned, earned that, uh, how important is it for us to follow Jesus's lead and how he uh, interacts with others here? What, how does he, how does he leave, leave them amazed? By listening. By listening and asking insightful questions. And just imagine that. Imagine if the reputation of the church in New York City, in Chelsea, was one where people were left amazed by our ability to listen. By the insightful questions that we ask. Not because we need to hold court not because we're so quiet and demure or guarded because we actually don't, we're afraid to respond, but that we, we actively listen, redemptively listen. We use our authority to guard the space for other people. And out of our wisdom and knowledge, shall we say that we've learned from the Bible, we've learned by following Jesus, we ask the most insightful questions, hopeful questions, not questions that are meant to shame people, but to persuade people towards an authority that actually loves them, supports them, dies for them. So what would it be like if we use the authority that is, is uh, demonstrated here? And really what I would call what Jesus is simply doing, he's taking his authority to be hospitable. You can imagine what a masterclass that actually was. But here's what I think is really interesting about this passage. This is a conference that, any, any theologian would have, would die to go to. And yet Luke doesn't give us one question. He doesn't provide one answer from that time. He's more intent on showing us a different Q&A, and that's the Q&A that takes place between Jesus and his parents. He directs our attention to their exchange. What is the questions that Mary asks? What's, what's the questions that Joseph is thinking? How does Jesus respond? That's the only Q&A mentioned. And it's in a, in a way, it's like Luke is saying, this is the theological question to consider. 
here's the practical theology that you need. And so Jesus here is, you know, reveals his authority politically, spiritually, but also relationally. Mary responds in a way that you cannot, you and I can relate. She's incredulous. How could you do this to us? Where have you been? Mary's comments make a lot of sense to, to me as a parent, as somebody who, who has a 12-year-old boy. The thought of him disappearing for three days would be a source of unspeakable uh, discomfort, right? And so we, we understand her response. But how should we take Jesus's response? You know, what does he say? He says, do you not know that I would be at my father's house? Now, how it's, as a 12-year-old boy, it might be natural for us to think that he's being precocious, that he's being a brat, that he's being what, enfant terrible, he's being arrogant, cruel, and insensitive. But this is where I think Christian doctrine is really actually really helpful. Remember what Christian doctrine says, scriptures say, is that Jesus is without sin. First John 3, 5, one of many places says this. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And therefore, as we even just try and deduce the behavior that's happening here in this passage, it's probably right to consider that the question that Jesus is asking is not one of a, uh, of a brat, but it's one who is, uh, or of one who's misbehaving, but it's the question of, of a person who's con completely committed to mission. So he's not misbehaving here. It's a sincere question. It's a pastoral question. And he's saying to his own mother from a place of authority, he's saying, mom, don't you, all that, all that you've taught me, you know, all that we know about my birth, the immaculate conception, the shepherds and their experience and what they conveyed to us and what they saw, the wise men who came from far uh, seeking me and, and, and worshiped and gave, gave gifts to us. Simeon's declaration, which we learned about last week, uh, the fleeing from Herod, all of these things, mom, remember all of those things and remember that this is my 12th year. And that's a very important uh, uh, very important for us to understand that uh, this particular passage, because in the 12th year, in Jewish culture then and now, that's the time where boys and women, uh, boys and girls become men and women. It's the time where Jewish boys are taken under their father's wing in order to become that which they're called to be. It's the year that fathers initiate sons into the family business. This would have been the year that Joseph, who's, who's his adopted father, would have taught Jesus all about carpentry, would have taught him about the Bible, would have given him a trade. He would have given him more responsibility, greater agency. He would have increased his authority. He would have called him into something more. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, this is what my adopted father has been doing and is doing. Why, mom? Why, Mary? Are you so surprised that my heavenly father is also teaching me these same things? That my heavenly father is giving me more responsibility, greater agency, showing me in greater detail who I am and what I'm called to be as the eternal son of God. You know, if you think about Mary, she was in many ways, you know, she, she had an incredibly uh, tumultuous pregnancy, courtship, she was, she was a, a refugee 
with a child. And there, for that, those reasons, there was probably, there's probably been no more protective mother in all of human history than Mary. Or a lot of mothers could certainly relate to her in that regard. And therefore, she's protective of her son, right? And yet his authority is such that it cannot be contained. So what, how do we think about that pr practically? Well, here's the rub. If Jesus ceases to be, to marry the baby in the manger, the child at her knee, if he exercises his agency, if he asserts his authority, the authority that he's had from the beginning, then the discomfort that she's experienced over the last three days, she has to realize is really just the beginning. To be in a relationship with Jesus is going to bring more, more uh, both comfort and discomfort than she could ever possibly imagine. And every person can relate to, to relate to Mary in that way. Because, you know, when we think about Jesus, we want to keep, keep him contained. We don't want him to have the authority that he says that he is due, is due or we don't want to give him the authority that is actually his. We don't want him to have a greater place of authority in our lives. But we need to be reminded, and I want to put this in a positive sense, when we miss out on, on when we refuse to give him authority, when we refuse to allow Jesus to grow up, then we miss out on some amazing things. We miss out on the insightful questions and answers. We miss out on being amazed ourselves. See, Mary had to be reminded of Jesus' authority in her life, and so do we. But we'll see this in a couple of weeks. That Jesus, that that coming under the authority of, Je of Jesus was good even for his mother. And over time, she didn't just uh, grow in her in her appreciation of his authority, but she grew in appreciation of his character. And because of that. In just a few chapters, when, when uh, Jesus turns water into wine, you know, the servants are looking at Jesus, and Mary's standing right there, and what does she say? She says, do anything that he asks. She trusts him so much. So that's a practical thing that we can learn relationally, that we need to be able to come under his authority, no matter who we are, and allow him to grow up, allow him to be who he, who he is. But you know who's going to have a problem with that? The religious leaders, because in, in short time, probably just 20 years, people like the ones that were amazed at, at, in the temple that day, these spiritual experts, these great theologians, people like them or them themselves will no longer be amazed. They'll be enraged by Jesus's authority. They'll be threatened. And some will submit to his authorities and their lives will change. And the, they're the, those are the ones that we're still reading about, talking about now, right? But others will not submit to his authority and they'll try and keep him contained. And the question is, is where are you when it comes to uh, Jesus's authority? His authority has been revealed. It's been discovered. Are you just discovering it for the first time or are you rediscovering it? Whatever place you're in, give over to him. Let him grow up and you'll grow too. Uh, so the authority is revealed, but we also need to see how in Christ, his authority is being redefined. And I'm going to say redefined, maybe rediscovered here. See, the authority of Jesus is being seen and understood in greater ways. But what's 
really compelling here, really challenging here, is he doesn't exercise his authority in any way that authority, people with his kind of authority do. He doesn't become an authoritarian. He actually submits his authority to his own parents. And here's what's key, is that it's the combination of his great authority and his obedience, coming under obedience, coming under obligation. It's the combination of authority and coming under the obligation of obedience that he grows, he flourishes, that his, uh, through his obedience, he expands into his potential. Look at the verse there at the very end. It says, and Jesus increased by, by submitting to his own mother and father. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What, what a verse. And what does that mean? It means that what does it mean that Jesus increased in wisdom? It means that he grew in knowledge and understanding. You know, uh, Sinclair Ferguson says that, you know, Jesus was smarter at 13 than he was at 12, that he grew in his stature. He actually grew physically taller, right? He was taller at 13 than he was at 12, that he grew in favor, which means that his earthly parents, they appreciated him more every year. That, but not only that, but he grew in favor with God. Now, that's a mysterious passage, but I think really what it means is that not only were the leaders in the temple and not only were leaders, uh, were Joseph and Mary amazed with Jesus, but so was God. He appreciated Jesus, the sacrifices that he made, being one of tremendous authority and yet submitting himself rightfully because he's on mission to Mary and Joseph. And so we say uh, rediscovered or redefined because when you and I think of authority, what do we think of? Sheer independence, liberty, right? Sheer independence, no restrictions whatsoever. I have authority. Uh, the antithesis of authority would be to come under uh, subjugation or to, be, uh, you know, to submit to something. But Jesus is, is like Adam. Think about it this way. Jesus is like Adam. Jesus had the ability to sin, but unlike Adam, he does not. And the reason he doesn't is because despite the fact that he's given all of this agency and all of this authority, he sees the, the he see, he's, uh, despite the fact that he has this agency and authority, he willingly gives over to the commands of God. He gives over to the, uh, to the authority of his own parents. See, authority means the, we tend to think that authority means the absence of restrictions, and therefore to have any restrictions must mean that we're not truly free, that we're in some sense subjugated. But Jesus had all the authority in the universe as the Son of God, and therefore he's not enslaved to that kind of thinking. He reminds us, he provides an opportunity to rediscover what agency and freedom and authority originally meant. See, true authority is such that it realizes freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right restrictions, finding those restrictions that actually bring liberation and freedom and flourishing and growth and maturity and submitting uh, his authority to another. What that means is that there's, uh, when we think about commitment, there's, we, we should re recognize that there's freedom and liberation there. When we think about covenant, we should recognize there's freedom and li liberation there. There's freedom in relationships with institutions and individuals. There's freedom in sacrifice and perseverance. There's freedom in deadlines 
and being disciplined, whether to your homework, uh, to your housemate, uh, to uh, the people you work with, to the, the food that you eat. There's freedom in being disciplined. True authority isn't about becoming an authoritarian where nobody gets to tell you what to do. But true freedom is when you spare yourself and others by recognizing the limitations and the lies of so-called independence. What does Paul say? Everything is permissible for me because he's free. But not everything is beneficial. Not everything helps him to grow. Therefore, he says, I won't be mastered by anything save Christ. So it's under the obedience of Jesus' parents that he grows, he flourishes in every healthy way. Now, <clears throat> coming, uh, seeing uh, Jesus' great authority uh, must have been incredibly uncomfortable for Mary. It must have made her uh, incredibly uh, concerned, anxious often. But what we see here is that more than anything else, it produced in her treasures, memories for her heart. So that when it came time for Jesus to enter into the ministry, she didn't just trust his power. She trusted his character. But how can you and I, who has seen enough authoritarianism in the world and in the church come under Christ's rule, how can we discover what Jesus discovered that weekend? We need to discover what the Passover was actually all about. See, the Passover celebration is a celebration of God's passing judgment upon the world in the time of Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, but, passing, but he does that by passing over every house. But while he brought judgment down upon Egypt, he, it's celebrated because he passed over every house that had the blood of the lamb on its door. And the celebration was that while mankind deserved God's judgment, uh, God graciously, graciously provides a way to come out from under it. But that was that, and uh, and the putting of the blood on the door that was always a temporary provision, right? But Jesus, it's been said that on the Passover weekend, he discovers his real meaning, his real purpose, his real mission. That uh, we're not going to that people aren't going to live forever putting blood on the door but that his meaning and purpose is to be the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world by having blood on a cross. And by having that blood on the cross, shall we say, that our sins are atoned for, that our, our desire to, uh, to have authority and our willingness and our desire to abuse it for our own sake at the expense of others is paid for. We're washed clean. And it's in seeing how he exercises authority for the world, for uh, the political world, for the, for the spiritual world, uh, for a relational world, that when we see that, that we're actually persuaded of another way, another way to wield the agency that God has given us. See, Jesus was the, the lamb uh, without spot or blemish. He's the one who exercised his authority perfectly, and he gave his life. He laid down his life. He laid down his authority. He took up good, good restrictions all through his life, and he took up the greatest of restrictions, death itself, so that others could be free from death itself. The scriptures teach that his authority was such, 
and his father's satisfaction was so great that death couldn't hold him. And for those who are in Christ now, it will not hold you either. It won't motivate you now. You're free. You're free to give yourself away to God so that others can know Christ and have authority revealed and rediscovered and redefined by the power of his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful son you have. What a loving God you are. By the power of your spirit, will you teach us these things? In Jesus' name, we come to you in prayer. Amen.